In part two of this discussion with Derek Reimer, we talk about the level tech stack and why Derek decided to build it as an Elm, Phoenix, and GraphQL single page app. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 92. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. So this episode is actually a continuation of the previous episode where I had Derek Reimer on to talk about Level, the new app he's building uh, for team collaboration, sort of to compete with Slack. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode and want to learn a little bit more about what the product actually is, you can head back to episode 91 and check that out. But if you've already heard that one, then enjoy this discussion with Derek about the tech stack behind the whole thing. Uh, So to get started, I asked Derek, what is the tech stack that you're using to build level? Yeah, so I've I've decided to use Elixir on the server side um, with Phoenix as the web framework. And then on the front end, I'm using Elm, which is a uh, functional programming language uh, that compiles into JavaScript. And then kind of in between Elixir and Elm, I'm using uh, GraphQL for the API layer, um, as opposed to using like a, a REST API. So it's for me, this is like a brand spanking new tech stack <laughs> i've spent yeah. the last the last uh five years uh at drip doing rails with jquery and some like <laughs> lightweight um uh you know web component type stuff um on the front end and all like server-side rendered html with sprinkles of javascript and uh and now this is like a, a single page application new language on the front end new language on the back end so it, i'm really uh <laughs> i'm being a bit ambitious with my tech stack this time around for sure yeah yeah Yeah, i think like normally when someone like takes on a new project maybe they just change like maybe they're going to use a different client-side framework than they did before or (laughs) yeah something like that but you've gone uh like full-blown rip it all out and put in all new stuff everywhere so yeah um maybe like a good place to start would just be talking a little bit about like the motivation there yeah um because yeah, like what made you want to kind of, and eh, maybe it'd be better to talk about the technologies individually, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. okay, so maybe a better place to start. You said it's a single page application. Uh, yeah. That's kind of like you know the high level, the highest level like application architecture decision change. I think from what you yeah. guys did at Drip. Yeah. So uh, what made you want to go like SPA on this app uh, versus a more traditional like server rendered HTML? with some interactivity dropped in and layered on approach. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I think that's probably a good place to start because that sort of spiraled into a lot of the technology decisions that I ended up making um, (laughs) was knowing that I was going that route. And I always have had a very um, uh, love-hate relationship with the JavaScript world and sort of just the front end framework world where I've for the most part been a, a bystander kind of watching what's been happening in the ecosystem the last five, 10 years. And, um, you know, I, I saw when, when backbone was big and then when angular was big and then there were, um, some other, like, like knockout JS came about for yep. a little while. And then, um, and now react is the new hotness and, but there's view also. And, um, I, you know, I watched with angular in particular, I had a friend who, um, who was using it. And I remember when, uh, when like angular two came out and it was like not compatible at all with angular one. And then I think they did it again with angular three maybe. And it's just, 
I'm just like this, this. It goes so much against my um, s- sort of the way I think about choosing technologies, where I, I always want to choose something that's relatively boring and well well established and pretty stable, um, because I think you know so much time just gets wasted in these rewrites and in these like having to just like spend a bunch of time spinning cycles so that you can always be on the latest and greatest uh, technology that. You know, we as a community still can't figure out what the best way to build web applications on the front end is, Yeah. you know, and I'm just I just get so frustrated by um, by even the thought of having to spend a lot of time, um, you know, messing around with that stuff. So I so I was very, you know, I've been hesitant to go single page on any project, really. But um, this one, I felt like, you know, this is the type of application where. Um, people are spending a lot of time in it throughout the day. Um, it's, you know, designed to basically stay open in a tab so you can click over to it. So it's a pretty long running, um, application by default, you know, and, um, I think having extremely snappy interactions, um, and real time updates kind of propagating down, um, to the, to the user interface is important, even though it's designed to be asynchronous. Like if you're, Anytime you look at the application to actually check stuff, um, you know, it should be keeping up to date in real time. And especially if you're in a synchronous conversation, of course, it needs to be um, very real time. So I felt like it had enough characteristics of, you know, a classic single page application that it would probably be um, the most maintainable route to actually choose some technologies that I feel like are really good at kind of... um, you know, going with that kind of single page paradigm. And so that, that's sort of what led me to take a close look at front end technologies. And I, I can't remember the first time I got exposed to Elm. It might've been actually Ben, my podcast co-host. Yeah. Um, because I think they use it a bit at ThoughtBot and he was at ThoughtBot at the time. And so I started to look at it and, um, I was instantly, well, my first, my first reaction was like, whoa, what is this thing? The syntax is very cryptic. I don't even know if, I don't even know what I'm looking at, um, which I think is a lot of It's like Haskell-ish, first. I think, right? It is. It's very Haskell-ish. Um, so it's, it's in the, I think the, the ML family of functional programming languages. Um, and it's very, you know, Haskell has this reputation of being uh, very much like a, a research programming language or a theoretical language that is not really, you know very friendly to use in production mm-hmm. and and elm sort of looks like it so i think there's always kind of this this air of skepticism around it like is this even a practical thing to use or is it just way too cumbersome and um i was you know, i had my healthy amount of skepticism about it but i decided you know what, i'm going to give this a shot and see how it feels and like some of their core tenants really were attractive to me like so it's a compiled language with static types meaning mm-hmm. that uh, you know, it's almost impossible to produce a runtime error in Elm. And that was that was very attractive because I think JavaScript is notorious for being a pretty loosey-goosey, you know, programming language yeah. where you can, you can sort of, you know, try to make function calls on anything and try to access things. And undefined is not a function is so common, right? Yeah, there's like a whole class of bugs that while you could catch them with tests, it's impossible to 
dream up every possible test case a lot of the right. time. So right. there's a lot of things that you're just tests that you might not realize you have to write because you can't, you don't imagine like a scenario that could happen that the mm-hmm. compiler is definitely going to, to notice. Yep, exactly. And so like, so Elm was, was attractive on that front. And once I started writing it, um, well, I started going through the, the, first tutorial on elmling.org and i would recommend you know anyone who wants to check out elm like that's a great uh, starting point i think a lot of it was sort of crafted by uh by the creator of the language and there's it's a very practical way to to sort of get introduced to it where i think they say at multiple points in time like just trust us follow along you'll learn kind of the the why of of what we're doing here uh, a little bit later, but for now, just trust us, you know, because yeah. it can be intimidating to, to get started in a language like this, that, that feels so different. Um, and like, so I, through that tutorial was introduced to what they call like the Elm architecture, which is sort of a pattern that emerged from people, you know, using Elm to build real world applications. And it's, it's sort of, if you're familiar with, uh, with Redux, I think it's Redux was actually inspired by the Elm architecture. Yeah. So, and it's basically just a way to like, uh, manage state in your application. So there's, there's a model that holds your state and then there's an update function that, that manages all mutations to state. And then there's a view function that kind of declares what, what the representation of your state should be, which is, you know, would be your HTML and sort of the, the internals of Elm handles, you know, making sure that all virtual DOM updates are propagated in a performant manner. And so it's just like you, it's all declarative how you define your user interface. So actually um, you touched on something there that I think is like worth exploring more before we get too deep into the elm architecture stuff yeah which is that you know elm automatically manages updating like the virtual dom in an efficient way so i think a lot of people myself included who don't have experience with elm sort of like have this question in their head like is elm just like a language that happens to compile to javascript that people use to write scripts and do whatever they want or is elm like a language specifically written to interact with DOM nodes in the browser. You know what I mean? Like is, yeah. is the fact that you're going to be working with DOM nodes, like a first class part of Elm, the language. Yeah. So I think Elm was originally developed like as, um, I think to do like canvas renderings or something like that, or to, to as like an alternative way to draw things on a web canvas. And then, like a little bit later on, like they started fleshing out the the Elm HTML library, which is like now part of the core Elm. So, um, I think so. Like, it's very much like an HTML slash browser aware yeah. environment. Yes, and like there are people who want Elm to be on like run on the server side with Node, and like there's the Evan, the language creator, has written a bunch about the kind of the the considerations behind this, and I think he's he's very hesitant to even move it in that direction because it is so highly optimized for like front end browser applications. Uh-huh. And then are there like Elm frameworks or is just Elm the language almost like a framework? You know, Elm I mean? the language is almost like a framework, which was another reason why I was like very intrigued. I'm like, if this if this works as they say it does, then this could be really interesting that like I don't have to, you know, choose a language and then go try to choose the best framework. For and then what worry I need about do. that framework getting trumped yeah. by the next big framework. It's like if you believe the language has staying power, then yeah. like you're good. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
And so that that was very attractive too. Like Elm architecture is just part of how you write Elm code, and um, you know, and the Elm runtime basically just takes care of all the, uh, you know, all the the nitty gritty details of that for you. So there's no need for an external framework, um, which is which is very nice. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I was gonna say. Um, so in terms of like it being like a framework uh, in some ways. I'm trying to think of like common parts of like frameworks that you might use for like an SPA and trying to think mm-hmm. of like how Elm solves those problems. Like the first one that comes to mind for me is like client side routing. Like, is that something you do with like an external library in Elm or does Elm like have opinions about how you do that or, or what does it look like at least in level? Yeah. So, um, so there is a, I'm trying to think if this is in Elm core or not, because there's like, um, when you're establishing your Elm program, they call it a program. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of define like Very what sophisticated. I like, the word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you choose your type of program you want. And, and one of the, one of the program types that Elden gives you is one that's navigation aware. And okay. so it sort of has like baked into the baked into the update function that you provide it. It will, it will automatically like propagate down, um, like change events when when the hash portion of a route changes. Okay. Um, and there are ways to do to also do like non hash based routing. Like if you want to get into push state and all that yeah, kind of stuff, yeah. it's a little more cumbersome. And at this point, I'm not worried worrying about it since I'm not you know SEO is not a concern for me. This totally. is all like an internal application. Um, so like uh, there are some some pieces of navigation built in, and then there's there's like a URL parsing library that. Um, that Evan created and everyone uses it, even though it's not like under the Elm namespace, technically, it's just like the de facto way to like, um, parse routes and stuff. And so it's, it's like half baked into the language and half just like best practice. Like there's, there's some standards already in the community on how to do it. Got it. So what about like, uh, something I see people talking about a lot on Twitter and stuff these days, which is something that I think kind of makes me concerned about building a single page application myself to be honest is there so much talk about like single page application performance and bundle size and there's so much work being done in like the webpack space on Mm -hmm. code splitting and stuff trying to optimize that stuff because when people are building these like full-on react applications and stuff um the initial the first page load if you don't do any code splitting and stuff like you might have like a pretty big javascript bundle size there and on mobile and stuff like that you know that can still be a problem these days right so what is the elm story for that like are you like does elm are you doing stuff with webpack and stuff with elm after after you like compile elm to javascript or is elm just have its whole own ecosystem with its own story for these sorts of problems yeah so so when you compile elm um it basically spits out a giant uh uh, bundle and you can you can um, like compile only specific uh, Elm programs so you can have you know you can treat Elm as if it were a um, like kind of a web component system where like you bind Elm to one specific node somewhere on your page yeah. and you don't even honestly you don't even have to use um, Elm for single page like it's it's suitable for just saying like I have this interactive component that I want on my otherwise you know server-side rendered application and I'm just going to like inject it at this spot yeah and so I think you can tell the compiler like I just want to compile this little component into one uh, JavaScript file and then you can like let webpack decide how best to serve that up um, or split split that up I guess Um, but for a single page 
application. I, most of it, it's kind of like bundled into one program. So I think you would get one, one giant blob of JavaScript. Um, it is fairly, I think it's fairly on the lean side, um, compared to some, you know, frameworks, but, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure. For your use case, I don't think it's that important anyways, because it's the sort of thing that someone's going to like open while they're at work on their real, I mean, sure, there's probably going to be mobile clients and stuff like that to worry about at some point. But in general, if, uh, if it's a 1.5 megabyte bundle, like, you know, which is pretty pessimistic probably yeah um it's still not really that big of a deal for most of your use cases i guess right like if i was building yeah if i was building something you know public facing like if i was building the twitter interface or something like that then yeah that would be a bigger concern because i think that's a big reason why they kind of have vacillated between client-side rendering and server-side rendering because that first page load is so critical um but then you think about an application like gmail where even to this day it has that like five second boot time right and, or think about uh, slack <laughs> yeah slack a good 20 25 seconds or something yeah. um so i mean i think it's it's a concern like i i wouldn't want it to get to that place but um it's less of a concern i would say than than other use cases got it okay so maybe um i don't know is there any other things like about elm that you think are interesting uh, to talk about or do you want to move on to uh, some of the elixir stuff yeah i'll just one other note about elm like um so i I had actually when you, you, me and, uh, and another guy, Sam, were we're all hanging out at microconf. Like we were, um, Sam's in the Ember community and he was sort of, uh, grilling me on like, so how exactly does Elm handle this and that and this and that. <laughs> and there were a few, there were a few points where I was like, you know, I wonder if like, I was questioning myself a little bit. Like, I wonder if Elm is just too, is it too new? Is it like, are there too many problems that are unsolved? And, um, I, and I sort of talked myself off the, off the ledge a little bit um, a few days after because I was like, my experience so far with Elm has been certain things are do feel more cumbersome um, in Elm than they would in JavaScript. Like, for example, just just like asking for the current time is not straightforward because Elm likes to keep functions pure and you know, a pure function by definition, when you call it, it should return the same result every time. But so what does that actually look like then? Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So basically what you do is, um, for things like that, where you're making an HTTP request or you're doing something asynchronous, you basically issue a command to the runtime and then, um, then a response will come back, will propagate back through your, through your update function. So you can basically say like, I want to, I want to grab the current time. So, you know, when you say time dot now, that's actually a task that you have to pass to the runtime. And then you say like, when, when a result comes back, I want, um, I want this certain message to, to handle that, uh, or to flow through the update function, um, so that I can grab the value and do what I want with it. So, um, so like if I want to, for example, keep a store of whatever the current time is so that I can use it conveniently, then um, in level what I'm doing right now is when I'm like setting up my page, I I set up basically a subscription so that every second it will fetch the current time and store that on the model so that anytime I need to access the current time, I can just look in my model access and get it. Access it as like regular state. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, we were sorry for the little sidetrack there, but we were talking yeah. about sort of the things that Elm makes kind of unnecessarily uh, 
well not necess- not unnecessarily but yeah but, you know hard uh, just hard yeah and but every time so uh, kind of the story was every time i encounter one of those like it takes a little bit of time for me to like wrap my head around why is this so difficult and you know is it all going to be this difficult but i think it actually pushes you to um think more carefully about things that would otherwise be a little bit like unknowingly dangerous like accessing the current time um you know usually when you want uh like if you want for example to display current time in your interface um well current time is changing all the time so you need to actually be considering the fact that rendering time dot now is going to be inaccurate within seconds you know like it's it's going to be the wrong time so yeah like thinking about it as a task and like oh actually if i want current time i should have a subscription that then periodically updates what my time is so it, i i just feel like this is kind of a winding way to say that elm forces you to think about um think about things that could be pitfalls in other languages i think and um and i kind of like the way it forces you to think about problems just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan uh, so if you're not already using them definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out it really is one of my absolute favorite services that i use on my own projects thanks a ton to cloudinary for sponsoring this episode back to the show yeah so there's a piece between the back end and the front end that i think is really interesting that i think we'll, we'll save till the end so let's talk about uh the elixir and uh, phoenix sort of story there so uh, I think the first question I have for you is, you know, you're the majority, I think, of your server side development chops are in like the Ruby and Rails world. Yep. So what 
kind of pushed you to want to try uh, Elixir and Phoenix? Like what were some of the things that like pushed you away from Ruby and Rails? And what were some of the things that sort of pulled you in that Elixir and Phoenix have to offer? Yeah. So I think, you know, like building a Rails application from, you know, MVP all the way up to, you know, serving thousands of customers and actually having to figure out how to scale it Mm -hmm. kind of made me think twice about like, um, you know, about the the notion of optimizing solely for developer happiness and developer productivity. Um, You know, I think that's, that is probably the most important thing to optimize for, especially early on in a, in a product when you don't know if you're actually going to achieve success, you know, like you want to, you want developers to be productive and you can worry about paying for server space later uh, or compute capacity later. But, um, you know, at a, at a certain point, like it just becomes clear that, (laughs) that some your technology choices will come back to haunt you and so i kind of went on this um i kind of went on this quest to look for technology that had that could serve both uh both purposes could be you know a joy to program in and a productive environment that people like to use and also be um inherently more performant than kind of the ruby and rails land and i think you know elixir fits that bill pretty well um it is a relatively new language. Like I think it came about maybe 10 years ago, eight or 10 years ago. Um, and it was actually created by Jose Valim, who was a, like a big time Ruby and Rails contributor for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, and it's built on top of Erlang, which is not new. Uh, Erlang has been around since, you know, the eighties and much of the telecom infrastructure is built on Erlang. So that's a very, um, you know, very battle tested, uh, platform. And so Elixir sort of just, provides a layer on top of it and, and compiles down into Erlang bytecode. So you're sort of getting the benefits of that mature community with kind of a nicer uh, interface on top of it. Yes. And, uh, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and so a lot of the semantics of Elixir feel very much like Ruby. Like if you look at a piece of Elixir code, you may it may take you a second before you realize it's not Ruby code. Yeah, um, like they use the same... Of, um, like def to start a function and end for like the end of a function definition. Definitely a lot of borrowed syntax there. Yes. Yeah. So, so it, you know, I was kind of attracted to it because, because it wasn't a law, a long jump away from Ruby. It felt Ruby ish. It felt kind of, you know, had the same aesthetic qualities. Um, but, uh, but kind of packed a, a performance punch. I remember seeing some early like Phoenix, um, which is the, the web framework, um, in, in Elixir that's predominant and seeing some of their early benchmarks that were like in measured in, um, in microseconds instead of milliseconds, because like, it's just so blazing fast. Yeah. So that was, that was attractive to me. <laughs> so do you know, like, like what about it is faster? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. is it just because like it's getting compiled down to Erlang bytecode? Um, because there's a build step and it's not just interpreted. Yeah, I think that's that's a piece of it. The other piece is like it is built for high concurrency. Like that's what, you know, think of Erlang running like, um, you know, phone call infrastructure or yeah. text messaging infrastructure. Like it's it's baked into the core to be extremely um, concurrency friendly. And so I think it's just like optimized for that path um, as opposed to Ruby, which has, you know, is very... Uh, you know, there's not true threading in Ruby. They're they're kind of um, call them green threads, but they're uh, basically at the 
at the interpreter level, it's kind of like faking threads, but you don't get true threading at, at the CPU level. So it's just inherently less uh, less optimized for that. Yeah, and I think like, there's a lot of things about being a functional language that make it easier to do concurrency, of course, right? Like mm-hmm. there's everything's immutable. You never have to worry about accidentally mutating somebody else's shared state or whatever so you can spin up as many processes as you want to process different things and nothing's ever going to stomp on each other which is kind of funny in some ways because i feel like for a long time the the criticism of functional programming was that it's not as performant yeah you know what i mean because you're you're copying all the time instead of just like playing with like you know the same reference is that something that like you've you know anything about or have thought about at all or that's a good, yeah, that's a good question. Like, I don't, I kind of don't have firsthand knowledge about kind of the internals of how they're doing this, but I heard, I was listening to, um, actually it was an Elm podcast the other day, I think the Elm Town podcast, and they were sort of discussing the same exact topic and, yeah. and mentioned that like, um, basically they've gotten uh, better at, at building kind of the internals of these languages to actually under the covers share memory. But at the at the programming language layer, you're unaware of that, and it all appears to be immutable. Um, I know there's lots so of things you have just, to think about in Elixir too, right? Like, like you you want to like make your calls like tail call optimization and stuff. That's kind of yeah. left up to you at the user level a lot of times. Yeah, I think so. Like, yeah, and fortunately, like a lot of times, um, there are there are a few points where I've used written done my own recursion, but there are like some nice. Um, like the enumerable uh, module gives you some good functions to like kind of do uh, performant recursion on your own without having to kind of hand mm. roll it. Um, yeah. Which is kind of nice. Yeah. Cool. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I guess like, yeah, I've played with Elixir a little bit. I did a bunch of the, um, the exorcism.io stuff because I really wanted mm-hmm. to learn a functional language and that's the one that seemed to be the most accessible uh, compared to like the Haskells of the world yeah. and stuff. And it's, it's really, it was really fun to me how many problems I had to learn how to solve in a completely different way from what I was mm-hmm. used to. Like recursion in Elixir is like very much an everyday thing. If yeah. it felt like, like there's no while loops, you know what I mean? So you better right. just recursively pattern match until you get an answer. And, and it was really like a fun way to, kind of exercise my brain and, and and it made it you know it was a really enjoyable um learning experience and even like thinking about using pattern matching instead of using conditionals and, and stuff like that yeah. it's really cool but i'd be interested in knowing like coming from a ruby and rails perspective what are some of the things that like you've hit now trying to build something real with elixir and phoenix that maybe sort of surprised you how challenging they mm. were compared to what you were used to yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, well, one of the things that's kind of hard to get used to is, um, at least coming from a Ruby world, like Ruby is kind of known for being a language where it reads very much like English. So, you know, if you want to pull um, the first user, it's user.first, and that'll execute a query. The Active Record library will execute a query that, like, fetches the first user or user.last or something like that. Um, and like working with the ORM in Elixir is like uh, you got to like form your query and then pass it to the repository, which represents the the database. And, you know, just so I think wrapping my head around um, 
kind of the different paradigm of you're not actually calling functions on objects anymore because everything is either just a a function or you know a module is just basically a bag of functions um, or it's a data structure of some kind that's just holding data and it's not actually you know containing you know me- methods that you can call on them um, so that was like I, I was very I felt very slow at first because you know as opposed to just sort of having these um, these relatively easy to remember um, DSLs and APIs like user dot where first name colon you know Derek it's like it's just you have to think of it differently and you have to kind of memorize APIs a little bit differently um, yeah so that that took some getting used to so something that um, I'd be curious to know more about is how you found sort of like the jump from like object orientation in Ruby to like the functional stuff in Elixir because like my suspicion or at least like what I'm most curious about is I think some of the biggest challenges with object oriented programming are like picking the right abstractions Mm -hmm. like figuring out like where this state should live so like should this be kept track of on this object or should it be kept track of on this object or yeah. like sometimes oh i'm passing five arguments to this thing like i think there's an object here but like i can't think of a metaphor for it to really figure out what it should be yeah uh, so i can move this state there but in elixir like you just have like structs basically yep. right and yep. functions so yep. do some of those problems like go away or they replaced with different problems or what has your experience been there yeah. So from my my experience, I'm sure there's a whole class of like um, challenging architecture problems that I probably haven't hit yet in mm. Elixir. So it's probably not totally fair for me to say that like it's all it's all better. But so far, like um, a lot of the problems that I experienced, like you're talking about finding right abstractions with objects, um, it's just been such a nicer experience in Elixir. And um, I, I found myself towards towards the tail end when I was still writing a lot of Ruby code, I was sort of writing functional-ish styled Ruby. Like I kind of gave up on always trying to, um, trying to like put the right actions on the right objects and just started implementing a lot of, um, I called them like service objects, but you know, there's not really a great name for them, but just like single purpose objects that do, that are responsible for one thing. So it was essentially an object that was wrapping a function call yeah Um, and i would just you know the common way to spot these is to see like a an object like workflow creator and it just has one method on it the call method you know and um i found myself doing that more and more because it was just easier to reason about like i mean it was very adherent to the single responsibility principle which is you know a a very common um principle in object-oriented programming but that kind of single responsibility is sort of in um you know, like in competition with the concept that you should, you know, um, pass messages to objects and let objects manage their own internal state. So like Mm -hmm. on the one hand, you should have an object that, that just knows how to do a single task. But then on the other hand, maybe you should implement that as a method on the workflow object instead. And the two are always kind of in contention with each other. And, um, I feel like we just spent so much time trying to always pick the right method and, and then, you know, doing a lot of refactoring when we found out we picked the wrong one. And I think a lot of that kind of thrashing about, um, I've found to be much less present in Elixir. Yeah. How have you found like code organization, uh, to be like, I, so, I always worried yeah. that it was like 
almost too much left up to me, even with like yeah. Phoenix. Yeah. So um, I felt that way actually getting started. Like I didn't, I didn't feel like I knew always where to put stuff. Um, and then I think it was sometime last year, um, Phoenix had a release that was mostly centered around helping uh, infuse best practices into mostly their code generators, but like kind of the, you know, best practice around where to put your code if you want to follow like kind of the mainline uh, path of, of organizing stuff. And um, they kind of introduced this concept called contexts, which is just like essentially API boundaries for different parts of your domain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like it used to be where you would have uh, sort of all your, um, all your schema modules that represent kind of your database tables all kind of at the top level. And um, this new pattern of using contexts moves things like that under um, under specific like modules. So instead of just having like level.user module, you'll have a level.users um, context module. And under there, as an implementation detail, you have the user schema. But like all the functions that you that you have that interact with users should be defined in the users module. So you'll have like a users dot create user function. And instead of like reaching in and like, um, you know, from say a controller layer or something going and directly manipulating the database and we're interacting with your repository, you just always like look to that users module for a function to, to do what you needed to do. So are you typically, having modules that have like many functions in them, like all the stuff related to manipulating users lives in the same file. Yeah, basically. And I haven't found like maybe that it will become unwieldy, but I think there's much less like Ruby has these sort of heuristics, like a a class should never be longer than, you know, a hundred lines or whatever. And I think that's probably less of a concern in, in a functional paradigm. Um, But yeah, I haven't really encountered things feeling like they're bursting at the seams yet. So that may, I don't know, I'll report back in six months. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So maybe that would be a good time to jump into uh, the other piece of the stack, which is the GraphQL uh, API in between yeah. the Elm app and uh, the, the Phoenix API. Yeah. So GraphQL is something I have read about here and there once in a while, never actually used it myself. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, what is like your pitch for GraphQL? What is the thing about it that uh, gets you excited and made you want to use it for level? Yeah. So um, so the biggest thing that drew me to it is the fact that um, you could basically construct queries um, for only the data that you care about. So like if I, if I want to get back um, a user, I can say, give me back if I want to get back a user and say their first name and last name only, I can request that with GraphQL instead of just hitting a rest endpoint that says like, give me back this particular user. And it gives me all, you know, 50 fields related to that user. Um, that to me feels like, you know, this is inherently more performant. There's less data being thrown around. That's, that's not needed. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is the ability to request related, um, resources. I mean, that's the graph part of GraphQL is basically you can, um, you know, each, each, uh, type basically knows its relationships to other, um, types of things. So if a user has many posts, then I can construct a query that says, give me back, uh, this user and all of their posts. And, um, you know, I don't have to execute 
two rest calls for that. The first one for the user and the second one for all their posts. And um, I can get all that back in in one response object that basically mirrors the structure of the query that I executed. Yeah. So I think the idea of it is super interesting. And I, th- I think the thing that has scared me about it the most is I can't see how the back end could not be incredibly complex to be able to support yeah. basically ad hoc composed queries from uh, the client. You know what I mean? Like you have yeah. to, be, it has to be like so generalized to be able to support all this stuff is like how I picture it in my head. Um, yeah. How does that actually play out? So I think in most languages, there's usually like the kind of the GraphQL implementation, which has a spec and it is pretty, you know, um, I think it's a pretty large effort. Unfortunately, there's a nice um, sort of library and DSL uh, called Absinthe for Elixir that does a great job at like basically giving full coverage of the GraphQL spec. Um, and so like it provides a way to define your schema. And so say at the root level, you have the currently logged in user. Um, so then in your schema definition, you just say like, this is what, these are the fields that a user should have. And um and like they, if they map directly to the the schema um, type that you have for your database table, then like everything will just kind of auto populate for you, so you don't have to like write bindings for every single field. Yeah. Um, and then you define your resolver function that basically says like uh, this is how we access uh, this type of object. So. Um, you know, so so where someone like, makes like a GraphQL query where they're like requesting a user like with a specific yeah. ID, like is that yep. that's kind of what it would look like from the client. And yeah. then that information gets passed to this resolver function. Exactly. And in the resolver function, are you just doing, are you doing all the work to get it from the database and everything and just like re- returning that structure? Yep. yep, you are. So, and so it passes you whatever arguments were supplied and you can kind of define that in your schema, like, if you have a a user field in your schema and it's a the 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 goal is to look it up by ID, then you'll have like an ID argument that's required, and you can specify all that that you know so that it kind of enforces your your rules around your schema, and then so those arguments get passed to the resolver, and you also get like some context information, like if whoever the currently authenticated user is, you kind of set that up in your middleware so that you know, your resolver knows who's logged in yeah. and they know the arguments for the, for the thing you want to fetch. So um, is it, is it your job in the resolver to also only select the fields from the database that match the fields that the user's requesting in the query? Yeah. So you can, that's basically up to you on, on how um, optimized you want to make that. I think right now um, I'm not actually like limiting the fields I'm selecting out of the database. Um, but the, but does the, the absinthe library handle basically filtering out the stuff that wasn't requested? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Got it. So you can inspect like what was requested in case, like, like I'm thinking of examples of things that might be like computationally expensive or whatever mm-hmm. that just yep. like, if the user didn't ask them, why would you waste time doing that work? So like maybe you have like, what is a, essentially a computed property on, like the yes. data structure. So like maybe like the number of posts that the user has created or something, which of course isn't stored in the database in any yep. way other than there's X records that were created by this user ID. Yeah. Um, so you wouldn't want to like do that count query unless 
the user actually was requesting that data. Exactly. So then if you had a field like that, when you're defining your schema, you would you would say like user has, you know, ID, name, first name, last name, whatever from your that map to your database fields. And you can add any additional fields you want onto user and define resolvers for those. And you know, those wouldn't those resolvers wouldn't get called unless it was explicitly requested in the in oh, the So query. you can write a resolver like not just for like the the resource, but for each field of that resource. Correct. Yep. Now, is that are those two concepts like differentiated, or are they all thought of as just kind of like the same thing? It's a key that you're filling with something. They're actually, yeah, they're actually the same thing. Um, it's like at the root level, it's just like the the root uh, object. I'm not sure if I'm using the right terminology. This yeah, is called yeah. The root, uh, root object, and then um, and then you have like. Usually you have a viewer field, which is like when you just request the viewer, it's whoever the currently logged in user is. And then maybe you have like a look up a user by ID field on there and that returns a type of user. And then you can, you know, define fields on user that return other types. So it's like everything is either a field or an object. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really... Uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. and We want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on you know, th- this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash radio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. So one thing that I've always wondered is how do you handle like performance optimizations around things that you would normally handle with like join tables and or yeah. like join queries and stuff um if if all these resolvers are kind of like running independently and getting aggregated together by like the actual library that's sort yep. of handling this stuff for you yep yeah it's a good question so like like without careful consideration um you are going to have lots of n plus one query problems where like you know if you get say you want um you know, a list of users and for each user you want their most recent post or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Then like if you don't implement it correctly, you would end up, you know, fetching back say five users and then you would run five independent queries for each of their posts. So um, there is some tooling. Um, I think Facebook has a library called Data Loader that um, I think is part of their like reference implementation in Node that... Um, sort of has tooling to help you eliminate those n plus ones and 
Uh, Absinthe also has like an implementation of the data loader, loader pattern. And basically how it works is um, if you define a relationship between two tables in your schema, say like, um, say you have a relationship between uh, a user and their most recent post, and that's defined as like a, like a user has one uh, yeah. post, then um, th- what the data loader resolver will do it's like a it's like a helper for writing a more performant resolver for that for that field and what it will do is say um okay we have we just looked up the five users and we know for each of those users we want their most recent post so it will first fetch those users which you can probably do in one query and then it'll say we have we need to look up their posts and we know that that's related by a foreign key relationship so we're going to go execute one query now and look up, you know, select star from posts where user ID is in this array of user IDs. And it'll kind of like do the optimization for you. So does that mean that, like I was under the impression that the resolver was, ac- each resolver was actually running the database query that it needed to run. Yeah. Is it is it actually doing that? Or are you just kind of like returning an abstraction around the query that would need to be run because like if you have like a resolver for like a user's most recent post and you have five users then i feel like it has to invoke that resolver function five times right so how how does how does that avoid those five queries so you can so if you just write your own custom resolver then yes it would it would basically not be aware of any other fields that need to be resolved and you would end up you know executing that query over and over again okay um but the data that's where the data loader um, kind of library comes in and it I think what it is basically doing under the covers is it's storing this um, it's storing this data structure on the on the resolution data structure that's sort of built up as the query is being parsed and um, it's it's like it's going to lazy evaluate those relationships so yeah. it first looks through and says like okay we want we want the most recent post for each user uh, let's make a note of that and then once we are, you know, done with that layer of looking up the users, then we'll execute one query for the posts and Got go it. on from there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It sounds like something you have to see to really know, but I yeah. think I get the, get the general idea. It's a, uh, it's pretty interesting for sure. So, I mean, what it sounds like to me is that a lot of the things that I worry about as being complexity in the back end are encapsulated in these libraries. Yep. for the most part like what about yep. things like authorization rules for like only people with this role can see this field on this resource is that is that something that you have to write your own code for or does the library help you with that sort of thing too or yeah so um so like if you're writing your own resolver then you'll get you know you you are likely stuffing the current user into kind of the the context of it so that'll already yep. be like an, an argument on that resolver function um if you're using data loader which is you know the way to help resolve the n plus ones mm-hmm. then you can basically define um define a resolver function that will um that will accept that current user context and then you can like embed a condition into the query to make sure that you don't accidentally return a result that the user is not allowed to see. Um, but it does, it, I will say that's one area that um, you have to be very careful with because if you're not diligent about making sure at each layer that you are performing like that 
off check and filtering out things that are not accessible, then you could accidentally end up leaking, um, yeah, you know, leaking data. Cool. So, uh, I think that's probably a pretty good, pretty good introduction to like the back end uh, side of the GraphQL sort of thing. Yeah. Um, maybe we should talk a little bit more about what you're doing on the Elm side to sort of issue these queries and what you're doing with the data and, uh, yep. and stuff like that. Yeah, so sure I'm coming in completely blind here. So maybe I'll just leave it up to you to sort of, uh, give me your best introduction to, to what's interesting about that. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. So there, there are actually a few, um, a few folks attempting to like write Elm GraphQL libraries right now that would, um, I think the goal of those libraries is to help you craft a GraphQL query that is um, like checked by the type system and enforced so that you don't form some query that's invalid. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are all pretty uh, young at this point and sort of experimental. So I've chosen not to adopt any of those at this point and just basically um, like write form the queries in as a string in Elm and use the HTTP layer to execute the query. And then, um, you know, GraphQL just returns a JSON object basically. And so, and then I can use, um, JSON decoders on the Elm side to, um, make sure that I'm decoding the, the JSON properly into, um, Elm strong types. And if anything goes wrong, like if I make a, if I make a mistake and return the wrong data, then my JSON decoder in Elm will, will blow up and that'll be my sign that I've made a mistake somewhere. And that'll happen. Yeah. I guess that could happen at runtime though. Yeah. So when that's one cool part about Elm is when you're writing a decoder, um, it's either going to return a success result or an error result. So you're sort of forced to deal with, um, with both scenarios of like, you know, this is performing an operation that could fail. So, um, I mean, you can either choose to just swallow the error and try to move along in Elm, which will cause, you know, can cause some unexpected behavior, or you could do something like, um, like hit an exception handling service or something like that. When, when a, uh, decoding error occurs so that you can kind of follow up with it yeah i think that's uh one of the most interesting concepts to me about a lot of these uh functional programming languages is um like is it called a maybe in elm like it is in other languages Mm -hmm. yep so like something comes back and uh instead of just you know like in ruby or php or anything else you might just try to call a method on the result Right. But because of some unbeknownst to you situation that you didn't think through properly, you got undefined or null back or whatever. And now you're trying to call a method on null. Yep. Now everyone has seen those messages filling up their logs. <laughs> yeah. So in a language like Elm, I guess you have, you get that result back and you can't just try and do something with it nope. because it's right there in like the, the signature of what you're getting back. It's like, this is a wrapper around a value so you yep. have to ask it to give you the value, which is just at least a signal to you as a programmer that it might not be there. So you have to consciously decide to not do anything, like consciously right. decide to ignore the fact that it could not be there. Right. Uh, whereas in a lot of other environments, that can just happen completely by accident when you feel confident that it should always be a value and it never even occurred to you that there's a possibility that it's not. Yeah, like in Elm, like a, a a result like that of JSON decoding will produce a value that is 
Um, I think it's actually called a result value and it's either an okay or an error. Um, mm-hmm. And so when you have that, in order to get at the value, you have to basically use a case statement and and handle both branches, both possible scenarios. So it's like right there in your face, you have to be very deliberate. Um, you can't just, you know, say, give me back the value and um, and assume you can just use it. Like, it's like, no, you got to write a case statement and then tell us what we should do in the event that it is an error. Yeah. Um, so it, it that feels cumbersome at first. And I'm not sure how it would be if I had to have that level of rigor on the server side. Like that might get, that might become too cumbersome, but... I feel like it's very nice to have on the front end, especially because um, I think it's just particularly well suited to that uh, kind of the UI layer of implementing stuff. Yeah. So I guess from the client side, the GraphQL stuff is really not as interesting, right? In general, yeah, no, because it's much less. Yeah. Because yeah. there's not really a lot of hard problems that you're solving. All you're really doing is figuring out what data you need, asking for that data from the server yep. where kind of some of the more of the complexity lives yep. and just getting back exactly the data that you wanted in one query and now you're done. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And what I like about it, um, so as I've been building out, you know, um, level so far, uh, for example, I was implementing the, you know, viewing a group and it started out like, okay, I, I need to, when someone navigates to a group page, I need to execute a GraphQL query to get back some data about the group. And, you know, to start with, I just really needed the group's name. So the query was very short to begin with. But as I've layered in more, um, you know, more functionality into it, it's like, okay, I need to display a preview of some of the members of the group in the sidebar. So um, I could just go back and and add another connection into my, um, my GraphQL query and just keep layering into that initial query, which has been kind of fun to do, and and then keep updating my my decoders, of course. But yeah. um, as opposed to thinking through, like, okay, now I need to fetch these. Oh, there's another HTTP request that I have to hit, you know, hit my REST API for. It's like, no, you can just keep layering into that initial query, um, and, and the performance and, doesn't change or anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very cool. Have you found that you are typically making changes on the client side of the GraphQL and on the server side of the GraphQL stuff at the same time? Like if you need something new on the client, does that typically involve making a change on the back end, or do they seem to be evolving more independently? They're pretty, they're pretty in tandem right now, I think, because um, I think it's, it's especially important early on for me at least to, to, not accidentally spend too much time building stuff that I'm never going to need. Totally. Um, you know, like you have all these relationships on at the database layer, but like, is it necessarily important to expose all of them through the GraphQL layer? Probably not. So um, I've been finding like tending towards um, just trying to kind of develop them in tandem. Yeah. Makes sense. With um, a GraphQL API like this, Typically, would you be exposing like this same API to a third party client? Like, is it, are you, are you designing this sort of in a way where the API that you're using from Elm, like Elm is just a, an, yeah. another client? Yeah, that's the goal. And that's another opportunity I saw where like, um, you know, I think GraphQL is touted as a particularly good uh, API layer for platforms where you could have any number of clients um, interacting with the system in ways that you can't even envision. And so, you know, obviously I'm my first consumer of my API, so I'm building things out for my use case. But, um, you know, as it 
starts to mature and the API becomes even more fleshed out, I think there will be really interesting opportunities for, you know, different integrators and different clients to sort of leverage the work I've already put into the API to use in, in ways that I couldn't have imagined. So I yeah. think that that's the exciting part for me. Yeah, man, that's really cool. I'm looking forward to uh, to giving GraphQL a shake sometime. So yeah. um, I think that's basically basically all the the topics and questions that I wanted to get through. Cool. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, talk about related to the level tech stack that you think is interesting? No, I think that's good for now. And I think I'll just like put in a plug for um, uh, the open source code base. It's on GitHub at levelhq slash level and um, you know, anyone can go and take a peek and see what I'm working on. And um, yeah, I love to hear from from folks in the community. So yeah, it's all awesome. For you. I think you have uh, at least one, maybe two, maybe three, I don't know, YouTube videos too, where you do some sort of like um, working on like the level code base, uh, yeah. just kind of on video, which is kind of a maybe a cool thing for people to check out if they're interested in seeing some more of what we talked about in real yeah. code, like in your face. Totally. Yeah. And I, I thank you, thank you for doing, um, similar types of things. I sort of took inspiration from you on that and people seem to seem to enjoy those. So I hope to do more of them in the future. Um, and you can find them at, if you go to level.app in the footer, there's a link to screencasts where you can find those. Awesome, man. So what is the best way, I guess, for people to keep up with, uh, progress on, uh, what you're doing with level and the uh, things that you're working on besides the YouTube channel and the, uh, the GitHub yeah. So the best place to find me online is probably Twitter at Derek Reimer. And then um, to keep up with level updates, uh, you can drop your email address on level.app. And I actually released um, the ability to reserve your your handle on level too. So you can grab level.app slash whatever you'd like uh, to keep your, uh, to grab your name. So I would encourage everyone to do that too. Has anyone tried to sign up as like level.app slash dashboard or slash <laughs> API or there's been a few of those and I do reserve <laughs> the right to, uh, <laughs> to confiscate <laughs> those. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, yeah. thanks so much for coming on, man. It was a really a pleasure chatting with you about uh, all this stuff. I'm really excited to see uh, what happens uh, with level and where it goes and to follow along with uh, the development yeah thanks so much for having me adam so there you have it folks hope you enjoyed part two of my discussion with derek reimer if you're interested in show notes for the episode you can find them at fullstackradio.com slash 92 thanks to rollbar and cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week see you next time